0: Is it well with your soul? Yes. Your soul can't be in a better place if you're in relationship with Jesus. Then you know your soul is well. We're going to be in uh, Acts 28 this morning, and uh, I'm going to, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8, verse 25. If you want to take a minute and turn there, we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Kathleen, can you back that down just a little bit? I'm hearing some feedback up here. Thanks for that. Um, brief overview. If you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we started uh, studying the book of Acts several weeks ago, and uh, been working our way from chapter one to found ourselves in chapter eight this morning. Uh, about three weeks ago, we saw this amazing contrast with Stephen, who was on trial for his life, first Christian martyr, and actually being stoned for his faith. And he screamed out, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. God opened up the heavens, and he could see Jesus standing at the throne of God. And we had this amazing contrast, because on earth, just the fury and the rage was breaking out against him. And yet, he had this peaceful moment of being able to see the glory of Christ at the throne of God. And then last time we were together two weeks ago, uh, we saw Simon, the sorcerer, try and corrupt the Word of God by trying to buy God's presence. And we know we can't buy God's presence, right, church? It's a free gift of God. But that was a result of Philip taking the Word of God into Samaria, which is the northern part of Israel, where there were no Christians whatsoever, and Philip was the first real missionary, left the area of Jerusalem, went up into Samaria, thousands of people were responding. Well, this morning what we're going to see is that God's going to cut a new channel, a completely new opening that no one probably anticipated at that point in time, and he reaches the world through an African in a very remarkable setting in what takes place when Philip is told by God to leave Samaria and go to this area where he encounters an individual from Ethiopia, a first Gentile convert in Scripture, up to this point, the Samaritans, who were half-Jewish, were not completely Gentile, but a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew, and so we find the first Gentile coming to Christ this morning. Before we jump into the text, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer, and then we'll, we'll move into the actual passage. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to be here because of the freedom that we know for the, the lives that have been laid down in battle over the years to preserve the freedom that we can come here unafraid, unashamed even, and worship you freely. And it can't be said around the world. So we're so grateful, Father, on this particular weekend that there are men and women who have laid down their life that we would know this kind of freedom. But regardless, Father, of where we're at in the world, where we find ourselves in the freedom of the United States or in war-torn Iraq we can know that it's well with our soul if we have relationship with you. So we're so grateful for what we have in relationship with Jesus, regardless of our physical circumstances. Father, we would ask that because of the great prices that have been paid for us to know what we have, that we would understand you better. So I pray for every one of us in this auditorium this morning that you would give us a capacity to see things that we cannot see on our own, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide and that you would walk us through this in such a way that it changes our life. Let us know that we've encountered you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to start out with a premise this morning, and my premise you're going to see on the screen, and it's this. God in love and mercy. We need that first one on the screen, Kathleen, so they can see that. God in love and mercy actually reaches out to man. Michael's catching up with me. There we go. Okay, now you guys are seeing what I'm talking about. God in love and mercy reaches out to man. If he did not do that, none of us could be saved. It's completely the work of God. Now, I want to help you to understand that because it's going to come out really strong out of Acts chapter 8 that it's completely on God's part. Salvation is totally the work of God, it originates with God. Grace just flows through him. Here's the problem there's two obstacles, and the obstacles are insurmountable. We absolutely cannot overcome them in our own strength, and they're biblical. I need you to see what those obstacles are because Scripture speaks very strongly about these obstacles. First one is this. Mankind is spiritually dead, absolutely incapable and unable to respond to God. It's not within us. So that puts it on God. Where do you get that from, Mark? Well, it comes from Scripture. Let me back it up. Ephesians 2 1 says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what does that mean to us? Well, if we're physically dead, we can't respond to physical stimuli, right? If you've got somebody that's laying in a morgue, their body is cold. There's no activity of the soul. It's left them. Meaning, you can scream and shout as loud as you want, but that person will not respond. They cannot respond to physical stimuli if they're physically dead. Well, the truth is, Transfers over to your spiritual life. If you're spiritually dead, which is what Scripture is talking about in Ephesians 2.1, you cannot respond to spiritual stimuli except for the work of God unless God is active, unless His Holy Spirit brings it. Jesus is even more blunt about it. Let me show you the way that He said it. John 6.44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him what my wife likes to call the wooing effect of God, God drawing us into relationship with him. It's on God's part to do that. So because of that truth, consequently, the hearing of the gospel by someone who doesn't have the activity of the Holy Spirit working with them appears to be foolishness to them, according to what Scripture says. When someone hears salvation, explain salvation in Jesus, it, it seems like it's nonsense, unless the Holy Spirit is at work. Here's the second thing. Satan is really aggressive. I mean really aggressive, working overtime to blind men and women to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of who Jesus is. That comes from Scripture as well. Let me back that up. It comes from many places, but I'll show you Second Corinthians 4.3. It says this. Paul was writing, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, Just chew on that for a minute while I bring you back to home base here. Because of those two truths, that man is born spiritually dead, we're born in our trespasses and sins because of what Adam did, and because Satan is aggressively working, you have incredible reason to praise God this morning. You may not have heard that. You have incredible reason to praise God this morning. The very fact that you are here means that God chose to work in your life and has been wooing you in. The very fact that you're in church this morning means you're privileged to hear the word of God. If you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, man, slam dunk, Because God has been working on you. The Holy Spirit has come around you. And God has chosen to bring you from the dead back to life. How much more could you have reason to praise God? Because we're told according to Scripture, man can't get over that barrier. We can't do it on our own. So, premise. God, in his absolute love and unlimited mercy, reaches out to man if he did not do that none of us could be saved. Now, if you're feeling this morning like, wow, Mark, we're only three minutes into this and it's like we are jumped into the deep end of the pool, uh, just, just bear with me. What we're about to look at in Acts chapter 8 is going to make what I just shared with you crystal clear. So let's go to Acts chapter 8 and verse 25. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll see it up on the screen or perhaps you want to use one in the rack that's in front of you. It says this, verse 25, so when they, meaning Peter and John, had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. And we're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So they're carrying on the work that Philip started, but God's got another assignment for Philip. Go with me to verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. There's an important reason that Dr. Luke put in parentheses this is a desert road. It's a footnote that he really wanted us to pay attention to. So when we hear the word Gaza, immediately our mind goes to the Gaza Strip. We begin thinking of what we know of from the news headlines and the battle that took place between Israel and Hamas last summer, right around this time of year it started. Well, that's not the Gaza that's being spoken of here. The Gaza that's being spoken of here is an ancient city that lays south of modern-day Gaza. So in the first century, about 90 years before Jesus was born, the ancient city of Gaza was destroyed. And a new Gaza was built, the one that we know today. But the one that's being referred to here is the ancient Gaza. So he says, go to the one that's by the desert road, meaning he's telling Philip to go off road. Here's why. When you leave Jerusalem to go southwest, there's one road that takes off towards Egypt that goes through the ancient ruins of old Gaza. There's another road that takes off west that goes to the new city of Gaza. Philip is being told to go to the ancient city of Gaza, the desert road. So this footnote that Luke has included here emphasizes something really strange about what the Holy Spirit's asking him to do, to go to this wilderness area. What's amazing to me in verse 27 is it says, he got up and went. It, it's absolutely amazing. That should st- look, look closely at that. I want you just to see those phrases on the screen. He got up and went. Would you not like that to be said about you when God tells you what to do that immediately you would respond? I'd love that to be said about me every time. It's not always true. When God tells me to do things, I don't always respond that quick. Here's why it's even more amazing. Where has Philip been up till now? He's been up in northern Israel, in Samaria, where the entire nation is turning to Jesus. He's been part of a citywide revival. He's been in the megachurch, and God's saying, leave the megachurch, And I want you to go to the desert area. I want you to go to an area you don't necessarily expect to even encounter people. So so leave the action, leave where it's all happening, and go to this place I'm instructing you to go to. It seems absolutely illogical, does it not? Would it not make you begin to question God, "What, what are you up to? What are you thinking? See, there's a prerequisite for being used by God. And the prerequisite is that you're willing willingness That's what it takes. Willingness to be used by God. See, he's not protesting. He's not saying, you want me to do what? You want me to leave this great area where I'm having all this success? I don't see him arguing with God at all. As a matter of fact, he's going to leave the crowd and he's going to find just one person. So clearly, the activity that you're about to see is completely arranged by God. Because man would not arrange this. I would absolutely in my humanness argue back with God and say, what, are you crazy? There's thousands of people coming to Christ because of what I'm doing. Certainly I'm needed here. This is more important, but God says I've got other plans for you. So apart from the activity of the Holy Spirit, the encounter you're about to see will not take place, meaning our premise is true. God reaches out to man. If he did not do so, none of us would be saved. Let's move forward into the text. And what I want you to notice as you come to the rest of verse 27 is the individual who's riding in the chariot has absolutely no clue any of this is going on in the background. He's just on his way back from vacation. Let's go to verse 27, the last part of it, part B. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, Who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, I don't want you to confuse this with modern day Ethiopia. When you think of modern day Ethiopia, you're typically thinking of northeastern Africa that sits over on the Red Sea. That would be an accurate description for today. But in the first century, Ethiopia spoke of everything south of Egypt, meaning the continent of Africa the power base this is a very ancient strong advanced culture very civilized culture and in the Bible, it's referred to as the kingdom of Cush. Let me show you the definition for it on the screen where the word Ethiopian comes from, and perhaps it'll help you to understand it a little bit more. I include it in your notes, but for the Greeks, when they looked at an Ethiopian, they described them as a person with a burnt face, someone who had been scorched with a dark appearance. So that's where the word a comes from, Ethiopian, because of the darkness of their skin. This this is what this kingdom is made up of. And it was of endless curiosity to the Romans and the Greeks. They're constantly trying to figure it out. As far as they knew, it was the outer limits, the extreme outer limits of the known world. But it was such an advanced culture. They really wanted to understand it. So they sent expeditions down the River Nile all the time trying to understand. They believed that the king of the Ethiopians was the incarnation of the sun god. And therefore, the affairs of man's activities on earth, the governmental affairs, were beneath him. And so, as a result, they named the mother of the king queen over the nation, and her title was Candace. Candace is not her name. It's like we would use the title Pharaoh or Caesar. Candace is a title, meaning she's the ruler over the nation, meaning mama's got control of all the money. And she's got control of the government. And this treasurer we're reading about works for her. So it's the modern-day equivalent of the secretary of the treasury. We find something remarkable, remarkable about this guy. In verse 27, we're told he's a eunuch, meaning he's been neutered, or another term would be castrated. This is an individual who's had his maleness removed. And in the ancient world, there was only a reason to do that that was very specific. When a king chose an individual, typically as a teenage boy, whom they were going to groom and shape to oversee his harem or oversee his treasury, they would prepare them that way. They would neuter them. So this man has been in the king's service, has been shaped by the king, and his physical status is really significant because he's on a pilgrimage We've seen that he's left Africa, gone to Jerusalem. We've already been told in the passage he's there to worship God, and he's returning. He's on his way back. So he's a Gentile who believes, but in this case, his belief doesn't earn him membership into the temple because of Deuteronomy 23. Old Testament law says a man who is a eunuch can't enter the temple, can't worship God inside the temple. And so he has to stop at the gate. So this guy's exploring. He's a seeker. He wants to understand God. He's gone to the capital city, but the rules say you can't come in. So this physical status is very, very significant. He can never enter in and worship God in the temple. So verse 28 says he's returning. He's in his chariot. He's driving home from vacation, and he's reading the Bible. Uh, Something remarkable about him is he's not only the chief treasurer, he's very rich and very powerful. Part of the way you understand that is he's holding the scroll of Isaiah in his hand. That was impossible for people to get their hands on, let alone for a Gentile. So he's got power and he's got money, enough that he was able to buy his own copy of Isaiah when copies were not available. Despite his power, despite his prestige, he's got this aching in his soul, there's an emptiness, and that's why we find him searching. So he's made this really long, grueling journey from Africa to Jerusalem, searching to worship and understand God. And do you notice he's aware that God can be known through the Word? He's aware that he can discover more about God by studying God's Word. Now, I want to speculate with you for just a minute, but I think the reason he's attracted to the book of Isaiah is very specific. Do you, do you think it's by accident he's reading Isaiah? And I don't think there's any accident here whatsoever, especially when you see the passage I'm about to show you from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 speaks to individuals who are eunuchs, who believe that they have no future. Because if if you've been neutered, it means that you have no generation coming after you, no descendants whatsoever. But look at what God says in Isaiah 56, verse 3. It's kind of a long passage, but I want you to see it on the screen. Let not the foreigner, that's this guy, he's a foreigner, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and and chooses what please me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. And a name better than that of sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. In other words, if you belong to me, you've got a future, and you've got a future with me in my house. Do you think that might have attracted the eunuch to Isaiah? I think there's a reason why he's drawn into this book, even if he doesn't understand it. Now, understand what's going on here from this level. All the essentials are in place. God's working behind the scenes. So Philip has obeyed the Spirit's call. He's left Samaria where the action's at. He's going to the desert place. This individual, the Ethiopian, he's seeking. He's reading God's word. God is prepping his heart. Time for the next step. Now, if you're Philip, are you not wondering at this point, God, what in the world am I doing out here? I'd be thinking that. God hasn't told him yet. He just said, here's where you're supposed to go. Go to the desert road. We didn't tell him why. So he needs some prodding, and the prodding comes in the next verse. The Holy Spirit has to say, hey, Philip, go to this specific chariot. Look with me at verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? So Philip runs up, and he's trotting alongside. Now, don't think of this chariot going like it does in, in war movies that you see. This is not a war chariot. Actually, the word that's used there is describing something more like a carriage, which has a roof over the top. So this man's wealthy enough that he's got a driver of his chariot or his carriage. He's sitting in the back in the upholstered area. The Egyptians and the South Africans were so good at making these things that it was actually like riding on shock, uh, shock absorbers. It was very comfortable seating and it moved at a barely faster than a walk. An individual could walk. So Philip can run up alongside. He's close enough to hear this man reading out loud. Now, how many here read the Bible out loud? Probably not many of us, right? Just maybe a few. You don't often do that kind of thing. When do we read things out loud? When, when we're frustrated, right? When we can't make sense of it. If you've ever put a bike together at 2 in the morning on Christmas Eve, you know what I'm talking about, right? You begin saying things out loud you wouldn't normally say during the daytime. I'm supposed to do what with that sprocket? I don't understand that. Well, reading out loud was common in, in the ancient world. And here's why. Especially in the scroll of Isaiah, the words were crammed together because vellum or papyri came at a high expense. So scribes worked really hard to put lots of words on the page. Sometimes the words ran together. They read out loud just to make sense. So when Philip runs up alongside, he hears this guy reading out loud. There's nothing unusual about it. Now, first, the Spirit has told Philip, leave the action area, leave Samaria, go to this desert road. Now he's told specifically which chariot to go to. He doesn't know who's in the chariot. He doesn't know the individual. He just hears the guy reading the book of Isaiah. Now, this entourage has to be impressive. The guy's a member of the royal court. It's not just his carriage and his driver. He's got escorts with him because he represents the queen and the king of the southern part of Africa. It has to be very impressive, but here's what you should notice. Philip is not intimidated whatsoever. As a matter of fact, as you work through the book of Acts, what you might have noticed by this point is spirit-filled people are always bold. I don't mean loud. They're bold. And you find spirit, Philip, being the exact same way. He's very bold about approaching and doing exactly what God told him to do. Now, for the individual's part, who's riding in the chariot, he is so perplexed by this passage, he seems not to care who Philip is. When Philip jumps into the conversation, he just says, do you understand what you're reading? Let's see this guy's response, verse 31. And he said, well, how could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. That, this official Invited Philip up into the carriage tells us a whole lot about him. It tells us he has a teachable spirit and he's humble, he's a royal member of the court. He doesn't shut Philip down by saying, don't bother him. Who are you to talk to me? You didn't even ask for a royal audience. He just invites him into the carriage to begin discussing things. So he obviously has a teachable spirit. I find Philip to be really excited at this moment. And I'm thinking it's not because he gets to ride in the royal limo. I'm thinking it's because he's beginning to see God's putting all the pieces together. Now there's a principle that's been running through the book of Acts. And the principle is this. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 all the way through Acts chapter 8, what you find are individuals who are confused about the things that they're hearing about who Jesus is. And in every single case, the disciples have taken the individuals back to Scripture to help them understand, here's how you can see Jesus. Why do they do that? Well, because Jesus did the exact same thing. When you go to Luke 24, you see Jesus explaining the Scriptures to them. What's going on there? Well, they only had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament like we do today. All the pieces were not filled in for them. So Jesus explains himself through the Old Testament. Well, the disciples do the exact same thing. When they go into Jerusalem, they stand in the temple, they begin explaining who Jesus is. Philip is carrying out the exact same thing here. So when this man says, I don't understand what's going on, as he does coming up in in verse 34, you're going to understand this is a Gentile from a distant land who can't make sense of this unless he has a guide Now, Dr. Luke tells us in verse 32 the exact passage that he was reading. Let's look at this. Verse 32. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Who's that passage talking about, church? Yeah, it's the Jesus answer, right? That's a safe one. Everybody can get that one right. Yeah, we know that, but he didn't know that. It, it was a, a clueless thing to him. It's literally taken not only from the book of Isaiah, it's taken from chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. I would really encourage you later today, if you get a chance to read Isaiah, especially chapter 53, you're going to see everything from Jesus' birth to Jesus' resurrection described 400 years before Jesus was born. This passage is one of the most difficult passages to to interpret, to try and understand. Imagine if you lived in 1850, And someone came to you and said, you know what? In 1897, a guy by the name of Thomas Edison is going to create a light bulb and you're going to have electricity in your house. It'd be like, what are you talking about All you know are candles and oil, right? You don't know anything about electricity or light bulbs at that period of time. Well, the same is true here. This guy can't understand. He's absolutely confused. So the Ethiopian's question is logical when he says in verse 34, what's he talking about? Who is this? Here's why the confusion is understandable. Even the best and the brightest minds in the first century thought that this passage was talking about the nation of Israel that Israel would be the lambs slaughtered, and that because of all the oppression they went under as a nation, that it's got to be talking about them. Others thought that Isaiah was talking about himself, and even others thought that maybe it was talking about the Messiah, but they were an extreme minority. So his question is completely understandable. The Ethiopian is focused on verses 7 and 8, so we should focus on that for just a minute, just so we understand how he's looking at this. Verses 7 and 8 that you see right there that are from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 are transferred over for us into the New Testament are talking about Jesus as the willing sacrifice to the point of losing all human rights whatsoever. The idea that Jesus would be a suffering servant was literally unknown and confusing. Even to Jews in 2015, It's a mystery why the Son of God would come to earth and humble himself and suffer. Now, as a result of Philip explaining this, the Ethiopian's mind is beginning to open. He's beginning to see truth and understand it. Here's what's significant running through this it is not just enough to desire salvation, it's completed by understanding salvation. So many times individuals desire salvation, but they don't understand it. People don't take time to explain it. We must also understand God's plan for salvation because when understanding takes place, that produces fruit. Let me show you an example from Jesus himself. He's speaking of a parable here when I bring this passage up on the screen. Matthew 13 is is where the parable is based, but watch how Jesus describes this. He says, and the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man, watch the flow of this, who hears the word and understands it. And as a result of hearing and understanding, he bears fruit. And even to the degree that some bring forth a hundredfold, meaning once a person understands salvation, not just receives it and accepts it, but understands it, that's a person who's going to bear fruit in their life. So if I've lost you up to this point, here's the big picture from Isaiah 53 that's coming out. There's this general picture of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. And Philip sees this individual reading this, and he knows he's got this guy. He knows he can absolutely explain this to him because the picture of Jesus' suffering that's the slaughtered lamb who's before the shears, silent. Uh, let me have you back up, Michael, just one slide. Would you put that, look, look with me on the screen, folks, and watch how he explains this to him. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. What goes on with the sheep before the slaughter? They're silent. They don't know. They're completely speechless. That was Jesus before the trial. When you look at the next part, he's lamb before the shears, silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. What's that? That's Jesus' trial, meaning he stood on trial, but his judgment was removed from him because it was an unjust trial taking place in the middle of the night. And what about the next part? His, his, his generation, his, who can relate his generation, meaning his life is cut off. What about that last phrase? Because that's where Philip really jumps in. That meant something remarkable to him. That mean, means something remarkable to you. So let's just put verse 33, this one sentence up on the screen. His life is removed from the earth. Philip knows in that moment, when he gets to that part, I can absolutely explain this to the guy because this is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. His life removed. What did Stephen talk about? Jesus standing at the right side of God, next to the throne of God. Jesus is removed from the earth. He's exalted to heaven in glory. And he begins to explain this passage. So you can understand why the eunuch is confused. Go with me to verse 34. He expresses the confusion. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. See, Philip's ready to launch. He's just waiting for this moment. So he begins from Isaiah, and he begins preaching Jesus. This is so cool, because here's what's happened. God has gone before Philip. He didn't have to do anything. He just had to leave Samaria and go to the desert area. God had already plowed the fertile soil. Stephen gets to, or Philip gets to come along and just jump in the chariot and explain who Jesus is. So we're told, verse 35, beginning from this scripture. Why did he go back to scripture? Because that's what you and I need to do every single time. We take individuals back to who Jesus is found in scripture because the word of God is the power of God Unto salvation—that's what Scripture says, right? That's what the Bible promises us. So that's exactly what you see Philip doing here. Any presentation of salvation is got to clearly present who Jesus is, found in God's Word, because of what Romans ten seventeen says. Look with me at this passage. I know you've heard it a million times, but perhaps you'll look at it differently. It says this in Romans ten seventeen: Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? Church? By the word of God. We take people back to the Word. It's great to relate your personal experience and to talk about your story and how you came to faith in Jesus Christ, but we always take people back to the Word of God because there's power in the Word of God. It clearly lays out who Jesus is. So as a result of all this, we're told the short version of the story is the Ethiopian believes Jesus, and the experience is so authentic, he insists on stopping the caravan. He wants everything to come to a screeching halt, and he says, baptize me immediately. This guy's not a closet Christian whatsoever. Move forward with me to the end of the story. Verse 36 says this, and they went along the road. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now now think the flow of this. The, The chariot's passing this pool of water. The Ethiopian is completely ready. The Spirit has done all the preparation. Philip has done all of his work. And he asks, can I be baptized? Now, just think of the flow. If If you think God is a coincidental God, think of this. Philip leaves Samaria. He goes to a desert road at precisely the right moment. The caravan is going by. God says, go up to that chariot. He gets in the chariot, begins explaining Jesus. At the time he finishes explaining Jesus, there's a pool of water. In the desert, folks, is our God weaving things together? See, I think if you looked back over your own personal story, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you'll see that same kind of intricacy in your life. You may not see it all and understand it all, what happened in the background. I don't think the Ethiopian knew everything that happened in the background. But God was weaving things together for his glory and for his good. Now, let's move forward into verse 37 because we need to understand when he asked the question, what prevents me from being baptized? There's a reason for him asking that question. Let's go to verse 37 first. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, he's asked the question, what prevents me from being baptized? The answer to the question is nothing but one barrier. And the barrier is, do you believe in Jesus Christ or not? Are you going to confess him with your mouth or not? What was the barrier from worshiping God in Jerusalem? You've got a physical deformity. You can't come into the temple. You're disqualified according to the law. You can't come in here and worship. So we have an African, a eunuch, who is searching and seeking and trying to understand, being told all the barriers have been removed. God has reached into your world. He alone brought you salvation. You just have to respond to it. Now, I think some of you this morning might have a copy of the NIV Bible. And some of you are probably using the Pew Bible and you're looking at verse 37 and you're saying, wait, verse 37 is not in my Bible. (laughs) Sherry, you've got one of those, don't you? Okay, and you're thinking, i have got to ask Mark after church, what's going on here? And some of you others have have, uh, NIV and you're thinking, what's going on? And matter of fact, if you look on the screen, you'll see that verse 37 is put in brackets and italicized. Here's why. Nobody knows where that came from. The oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't include verse 37, but yet somehow it made it in there. Either a scribe inserted it in because he heard later that that was common and that Philip did that, or he just wanted to help things along. But the editors of Scripture were wise enough to say, wait, this isn't part of the original manuscript. Here's why that's significant. That phrase that you see in verse 37 was always asked of someone once all of the disciples died and they had faded out of the scene, before someone was baptized into faith in Jesus Christ, the question was asked, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And the person could not be baptized until they answered that affirmatively. So what we're looking at is an ancient scribal technique of someone taking this baptismal vow and putting it in here as part of the text. There's certainly nothing unbiblical about it, and it has great value. But here's what's important. That type of response has to be there in order for Philip to move ahead and baptize this individual. And as a result, verse 38 happens. He orders the chariot to stop, and they both go down, and the baptism takes place because there's been a confession of belief. And notice this. This confession of faith is not just in front of Philip. Who's the man have with him? His coworkers. His caravan is there. Do you think they talked about what happened when they got back to the royal kingdom later that week? I think after that several hundred mile journey was over and they're back in town, they're certainly talking about what happened with the royal treasurer. He confesses Jesus as his savior to the degree he was baptized. He's willing to own it. Let's finish out the story. Verse 39 says this, When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospels to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This is the first example you find in the New Testament of a rapture event. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here is the word harpazo. It's where the concept of Christians being snatched away by the power of God at some point in the future. This is the first time it occurs in the New Testament. For Philip's situation, he's raptured away, snatched away, much like Elijah in the Old Testament, and redeposited on another place in the Middle East, in Israel, the, the city of Azotus which is really along the coastal cities of the Mediterranean. So he's like starting out down by South Haven and working his way up through Grand Haven and up to Ludington, okay? That's what's going on here. He works his way in the southern part of the Mediterranean on up to Caesarea. As a matter of fact, when you come to the end of the story, you find that Philip lives out the rest of his life in Caesarea. The Holy Spirit who started all of this activity now brings it to a close And I think there's something remarkable in this rapture event that took place here. What God has done, regardless of how it happened, is he has sealed his commitment that this is truth. When the Ethiopian eunuch heard this truth, was baptized, and then watched Philip snatched away, he's vanished before his eyes, God has confirmed through a miracle the truth of everything that Philip has just said. Now, Philip, for his part, he goes on to witness up and down the coastline, makes his way to Caesarea. The Ethiopian story, it ends just as it began, with the Holy Spirit bringing everything together. Our God creates and opens opportunities. He directed Philip exactly to the right person. Here's the mysterious thing to me about this passage. I'm working through it this week, and I'm wrestling over an issue, and I couldn't quite come to resolve on it until about two days ago. Here's the mysterious thing. He's called Philip out of this really successful environment where, if you will, he's been in the megachurch. And God says, I want you to go to the desert area. Leave the crowd. Go find the one individual. Now, the individual, at the same time Philip is being told to leave Samaria, is leaving with his caravan out of Jerusalem. And the two merge on the same road. Now, where has the Ethiopian eunuch been? He's been in Jerusalem. He's been where the apostles are at, where the first church is at. And yet, because he's been in that city, he's seeking the one true God, worshiping God, but he didn't hear of Jesus while he's there. God waits until precisely the right moment when the man is in his own space He's reading God's word, and his mind is triggered, and it's firing on all cylinders with questions. And that's when God says, let me introduce you to Philip. And Philip brings solutions to his questions. God knows us. He weaves things together intricately. Coming back to our premise, if God did not reach out to us in unlimited love and endless mercy, None of us could be saved, but because God did that for each one of us, we have reason to praise God. So what does that mean for us this morning, church? For one, salvation is totally the work of God. It is by grace you have been saved, right, church? And that not of yourselves, not of your works, lest any one of us could boast. So we go out of here this morning with a particular thought, and this thought is we stand in awe of a God who can do and orchestrate those kind of details in our life. His mercies are new every morning, are they not? New every morning. So how great is our God who is like our God? Would you pray with me this morning? We have reason to celebrate. Let's praise. Father, I thank you so much for what you have done. We praise you through prayer. We praise you through our, just the feeling of emotion that wells up with inside us right now to know that we were chosen and selected by you, and that you revealed yourself to us. God, I pray that you help us as we move forward through this week to not forget this truth, that in spite of the fact that we're spiritually dead, and in spite of the fact that Satan's been working against us, you have revealed yourself to us, and you caused the activity of the Holy Spirit within us to allow us to respond to you. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thank you for what we've seen in your word this morning. I pray that you would send these individuals out with your blessing on them now. Thank you in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.